when I first transitioned out of Goldman in 2014, 2015, I wasn't making the same amount of money that I was making earlier, right? Because I was no longer on the deal side. So that was my first realization that this money can go away as quickly as it came. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Anish Mitra. Anish is an NYC Queens-raised Bengali that has built a career working in finance with big name firms such as Barclays and Goldman Sachs. But he's not your typical finance bro wearing Ferragamo and buying crypto. Well, I guess he does a bit of that too. But while doing valuations and learning and development work at these firms, Anish also started a successful career in comedy. He's performed at Gotham Comedy Club, The Village Underground, and at many corporate gigs. He even ran a monthly show called The Surprise Show, which has featured Nikki Glaser, Hassan Minhaj, Jim Gaffigan, Ronnie Chang, and other big names. Today, Anish has left the corporate world behind and combined his talents to create IPO and Chill, a brand for entertaining financial news and content. We talked about the trend of people entering investment banking for money and how Anisha's relationship with money has changed over time. He shared the story of how he stumbled into a career in stand-up comedy, and I asked him how that compares to making content for TikTok and other social media platforms. And near the end, he dropped some serious gems on living a more intentional life. With warm applause, Anish Mitra, welcome to Brown People We Know. Anish, you moved from NYC to LA. You quit a finance job and you're making TikToks. I just want to make sure that no one kidnapped you and took you to a content house out there. Uh, No, and unfortunately not yet. I'm still waiting for that to happen. That would be amazing. Only a matter of time, right? Yeah, hope I hope so. I mean, I have been to a few of the houses out here just to meet up with some people and and network a little bit. You got to play that game now that COVID has died down a little bit, at least out here in LA. But but yeah, I'm still waiting. Still, it's like, you know, when the Illuminati comes and gets you and says you're in the club, that's <laughs> that's what we're going for here. So I wanted to kick off by talking about your time in finance. You spent nine years working at Barclay and Goldman and then transitioned a little bit into comedy and some of the social media stuff that you're doing right now. But to kick us off, finance to many people is kind of an elusive word. People hear hedge funds and M&A, and these are things that that do impact their lives, but they don't necessarily know what's going on. So can you tell us like the type of stuff you were working on? Yeah, sure. And look, that was me, right? I'm from Queens. I'm from New York. I'm an only child. My parents do not work in finance at all. They work for the city of New York. My mom's a teacher and my dad's retired, but he worked for the fire department. Wasn't a firefighter though. But I I had no idea what the world of finance, so to speak, looked like. I thought Wall Street was all people trading stocks and Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen type people from the movie Wall Street. And when I was at Brown, where I went for undergrad, I studied economics and a lot of my friends were going into these Wall Street jobs. And I was always into law school because I like reading, writing, and there's no way I was going to go to med school. So I remember catching up with one of my buddies who was a baseball player a little bit older than me. And I asked him what he had done over the summer. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I worked at this bank called Lehman Brothers. And this was back in 2008, I want to say. So... (laughs) Now, you know, after meeting him, I knew why Lehman probably went under. But 
you know, these these guys were telling me about these jobs that they were doing. And I asked him, I was like, so what'd you do? And he was like, oh, I worked in mergers and acquisitions. And I said, oh, what's mergers and acquisitions? And he goes, bro, I don't know, but they paid me $10,000 to update some PowerPoints. So, <laughs> so after that, I threw my LSAT book in the garbage and I told myself, this is what I wanted to do. And I worked, like you said, I worked at Barclays for two years, which was the bank, the British bank that bought Lehman Brothers. I graduated from school in 2010. I worked there in financial institutions, covering financial institutions, focusing on mostly M&A, some, some capital raising type stuff. And then I worked at Goldman for the next seven to eight years across a bunch of different roles. And frankly speaking, it was the best thing I ever did. It was the worst thing I ever did. It was just a completely different world. And I'm glad I went through it. And if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now. I've heard you give this really beautiful explanation for why IB can be kind of a dangerous career because you drew a comparison to ballet. You said people either really want to do ballet or they don't do ballet because the payout isn't there after grinding and becoming an amazing ballet dancer. With IB, that's not the case. You grind for two years, you get a lot of money, right? Do you feel like at the end of the day, you went into IB for that reason and kind of had this exit plan of sorts? Or did you have a genuine interest in finance? I think that's the biggest misconception about a lot of financial careers that you make a lot of money because what is a lot of money? There's a difference between money and wealth. And I think if you go into careers like finance or law, even, yes, you can make a lot of quote unquote money. You can make several hundred thousand dollars a year as a young person, which is the life that I was living. But remember, I was in New York, right? Rent in New York is not cheap. And you don't want to live outside of the city because that's where you're working. Also, you want to go to nice dinners. You want to do nice things. I think the main lessons I learned about finance weren't so much about what's going on on Wall Street or why companies are getting acquired. The main things that I learned being there is no one is actually ever going to teach you how to manage your money. I'm sitting there 100 hours a week trying to figure out if some company should buy some other company and what's the best use for their cash. You're not going to learn those lessons for yourself. Those are the things that you need to focus on. And I made a ton of mistakes spending-wise when I was in the city. Trust me, I thought I was a young rapper that just got signed. I'd be going out every weekend. Me and my boys would be popping bottles. And I think a lot of that was also just to relieve stress and to get away from the fact that we were literally chained to a computer for 100 hours a week. But it's not a glamorous life. To your point, yes, you can make quote unquote, a decent amount of money relative to some other careers. I've always had a general interest in markets and finance, but investment banking wasn't for me because to a certain degree, investment banking really isn't markets or finance. It's a job where the other analogy I make that I really believe in is when we think of people that really have wealth, like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, people that have built things, right? If you think of them as cake makers, they're making the cake, right? They're making something that ultimately people want to consume. And it's this big visible thing that everybody can see. Bankers and lawyers are the mice that eat the crumbs when people are moving the cake or when they want to make the cake bigger. Maybe they want to slice off a piece of the cake and give it to their investors. Bankers and consultants and lawyers, these are advisory professions that survive on fees the same way mice survive on crumbs. If you really want wealth, you have to start making cake. I'm about to join a consulting firm, so it's scary to, to hear, but at the same time, I've heard it before. Which is fine. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with that, right? These, these are all professions that at some point can provide value. And to your question earlier, 
you need to be in tune with what you're good at, what your skills are, and where you see yourself providing the most value in life. And there were bankers that I worked with that were amazing people, and they were not only very good at their jobs, but they understood the greater point of how to motivate their team properly, how to recruit people properly, how to be nice to people, how to mentor people. Those are the people that ultimately will do very well in whatever they do, but they choose to do banking or they choose to do law because that's where their interests lie. So if you're interested in being a consultant and it's something that you can see yourself doing really well in, then I applaud you. And I think there could be a lot more opportunities for you down the line. The number one issue that I see with people that enter these high power, white collar careers, like law, finance, consulting, is they don't really want to do it or they know they may not want to do it, but they do it anyway for the money or they start doing it. They realize they don't want to do it, but they stay in. A very small percentage of people get into it not knowing what it is realize it's something they want to do and then stay for 10, 20, 25 years and make it a career. You mentioned being chained to a computer for 100 hours a week. Over the course of nine years, was it still spreadsheets or did that career start to transition into more relationship management? What sort of skills were you using? So I made this analogy also. I made this comment in one of my Instagram videos. I was talking about dating. The same skills that get you from level one to two aren't the same skills that get you from level two to level three. And the context was, look, when you're trying to acquire, when you're in the acquisition phase, when you're trying to meet someone for the first time, you're going to do things that create intrigue around you. You're going to do things that create interest around you. You may be a little coy. You may play it safe. You're not going to come out the gate with flowers or a ring, right? But once you actually have the person and you're together and you're in a relationship, if you're still playing games and not texting back and going MIA, well, you're never going to get to the next level, right? At this point, it's about building trust. So it was an analogy between dating and finance. Financial careers work the same way, in my view. The first few years of my career, probably the first three or four years, yeah, a lot of it was the typical junior level type stuff. And you get, it's like being on a hamster wheel, right? The more you run, the more you get. And the more well you do, the more responsibility you get. So my goal was always to try and do the little things that I was given really well so I can be given more little things. And then suddenly you have all these things that you have to do. So the first three or four years, it's mainly financial analysis, building models, making presentations, putting together materials, a lot of managing meetings. If anything, working in finance prepared you very well for the Zoom life, the Zoom work remote life, because you got to manage calendars, you got to be organized. And those are a lot of, look, I'll be honest, those aren't skills that I had. I didn't, I'm an only child. I didn't have to be super organized growing up because I'm also Daisy. My mom was organized, which meant I was organized. <laughs> and even going away to college didn't force me to be that way. I was very much, I went to Brown, you pave your own path. I took the courses that I wanted to take. I didn't really have to deal with anything I never wanted to deal with. But once you're in the working world, you're 99% of the things you're dealing with are things that you may not want to deal with. So aside from the task-oriented nature of being a junior banker, there's also, depending on your background, depending on where you come from, there's a lot of getting comfortable with working with others, getting comfortable with working with people that you might not even agree with or get along with. So it's a very humbling experience. To give some context to your listeners, I was in investment banking for two years. And then at Goldman, my first job at Goldman was, and this was for the next two and a half years or so, I was in this group called the reinsurance group, which bought other insurance companies. So I was on the buy side doing principal transactions. And a lot of my responsibilities didn't really change. If anything, I had some cooler responsibilities. Like I got to talk directly to the target companies. I got to help do the negotiations with the targets or even if there are other bidders. And that was a really cool experience. I got to manage a lot of lawyers and learn how to put together a reinsurance agreement or a merger agreement. And those are skills that 
are very, very important, not because you might do a merger randomly one day, but you need to know how these docs and these processes work, right? Because at some point you're going to be dealing with lawyers for your own personal stuff. And that was really the first four, four and a half years of my career. In 2015, 2016, I wanted to pursue something a little bit more creative. It was always killing me on the inside. I was a big writer in college. I ran a newspaper. You know, I'm, I'm Bengali. You know, we love singing. We love dancing. We love being expressive. So I decided to take a step back from that role, and I moved into something called learning and development at Goldman, where I was helping to run the entire banking training program. So this was a completely different field. It's within human capital management. And the reason I got the job was because I was intimately familiar with what these people needed to learn, not just from a technical standpoint, but also behaviorally, right? Like, what are the qualities that may make you successful in this role? What are the things that you need to be thinking about, not just accounting or modeling? That ended up evolving into me running the training for all of the different revenue divisions. And once again, that became another 80, 90 hour a week thing because I got promoted to VP. But while I was doing all this, I was doing stand-up comedy in New York. So that's when I first wet my beak, so to speak, into the entertainment world. And once 2019 came around, I was at a crossroads where I had to make a decision. Do I want to stay in this or do I want to do something a little crazy, move to LA, see if it's really for me? And I got to LA February 2020. A month later, this thing called COVID-19 took over the world. And then the rest is kind of history. You just randomly kind of decide to build a comedy career? Because I know you've performed at Gotham Comedy Club, The Village Underground, Eastville. You've done corporate gigs. So clearly you're building a successful comedy career. But what sparked that interest? And I'm curious what types of things you talk about during your sets. I started doing comedy in 2015 because a friend of mine invited me to a comedy show. I'd never been to a comedy show before. And I didn't even watch stand-up comedy. I wasn't really a fan, aside from the Chris Rocks of the world, few Russell Peters things, obviously, because we're brown, Jerry Seinfeld stand-up. Aside from the people that you think of, I had no idea that there was a comedy scene that anybody could just get in front of a mic and start talking and it would become comedy the same way now it is anybody can get in front of a camera and become a content creator. <laughs> I'm guilty of that too, I guess. I do numbers though. But I think what did it for me was a, a, my buddy who was another brown dude, a little bit older than me. He invited me to a comedy show at the Stan Comedy Club in New York the summer of 2014, 2015, I want to say. And I thought we were just going to hang out. I show up. He's nowhere to be found. I get seated. I'm sitting down. I'm like, all right, whatever. This is kind of cool. I've never been in a club before. And these performers start coming up. And look, I think we're going to see, this is in New York City. I think we're going to see Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, these big name guys. It's a bunch of people I'd never heard of or seen before, but they were funny. And they, it looked like they had been doing it for a long time. And then my friend comes up on stage and he starts, he's a lawyer and he starts doing this. And I'm like, that's when the aha moment hit. I'm like, wait a minute, this is something that I can do. And it wasn't so much for the money, obviously. I don't think anyone gets into comedy for the money, but it was more to just try it and see, is this something that I can learn and do? And is this something that can help me network and meet other people in the industry? So I figure if I'm going to, I didn't have any hobbies really aside from working and maybe working out and then drinking. So I was like, look, this may be a good hobby just to do when I'm not working and something that I can continue to build on. I did it for five, five and a half years. Me and my buddy, the one I talked about, we ended up running one of the hottest independent shows in New York. We've worked with Jim Gaffigan, Hassan Minaj, TJ Miller, Nikki Glazer, Ronnie Chang. 
And we ended up building a brand around having more diversity in stand-up comedy in New York. And that was the one aha moment I had in my head where the same way there are in consulting, banking, the same way there are in the professional world, there are a lot of gatekeepers in the entertainment industry, or at least the entertainment industry of the past before social media and TikTok. And we realized very quickly that we weren't going to curry any favor with these people who are booking at the comedy seller or the person that books for Conan. And there was this idea that in comedy, you had to do it for 10, 20, 30 years before anyone would even look at you and think, oh, okay, maybe this person should have a Netflix special. And I have a lot of friends in the startup space and the VC space. So that those seeds were already in my head. But that realization lit the fire in me that, look, I got to go out and create something on my own and just focus on building it. And I don't care if it doesn't have a huge platform in the beginning, at least I own it. And it's something that I can control the path of. So all those experiences in 2015, 2016, up to 2019, inclusive of everything I've done at Goldman, led me to move to California and to start creating content on my own. Make my cake. During that period of transition, I'm wondering what that was like, because when I think about comedy, you can say almost anything as a comic and people will give you a pass, right? Because you're a comic versus in the corporate world, it's like very buttoned up. Comics wear hoodies, corporate people wear suits. Did you feel like you were jumping in between two different worlds? Maybe like, oh, I have to keep this hush hush at work. I can't talk about this. Was that kind of a strange period for you? It wasn't actually because I told myself that I wasn't going to do anything that I wouldn't normally just do in front of other people. I think the issue that happens, and this isn't just with comedy or hobbies or artistic stuff, or even with rappers, you see, right? It's the number one thing that happens in rap. If you're fake, you get called out. Look at Drake. He went through that for a long time. But the reason I think people, artists like Drake really shine is because they're able to be vulnerable and they're able to just be real and tell people this is how I feel. It is what it is. And people ultimately identify with that. And in the in the 2014 to 2019 period when I was doing stand-up comedy, my act was entirely clean. I talked a lot about investment banking, what I learned at work, the differences between me and some of my coworkers. I talked about being Desi and growing up in a Desi household with two parents, one of which was a huge tiger mom. So I only talked about myself as maybe selfish as that sounds, but... Look, I also bring a bit of a business aspect to this, right? Uh, I'm a big strategy, competitive person. And I see so many up-and-coming comedians talking about politics or talking about dating or talking about all these other hackneyed subjects. And it's fine to talk about whatever you want to talk about, like you said, but at least make it about yourself and root the experiences in yourself. We all have observations about tacos. We all have observations about Trump or Hillary or Biden or whoever. But so does Trevor Noah. So does Stephen Colbert. How are you competing against those guys? You know, when you look at someone like Hassan Minaj, he did it in his own way. And he was also talking about the Muslim angle, which a lot of folks weren't talking about. And it made sense for him to do that because he is a Muslim. So for me, my comedy or my art, I should say at the time when I was a comedian, I'm not a stand-up comedian anymore, but when I was, it was all about what can I talk about that no one else can talk about. And once I found social media, I was able to not only do that because the issue with comedy is, yeah, you could do that. But at the end of the day, if you're in a club with 300 drunk people and they're random and they're not necessarily your target market, no matter how funny these jokes are, no one's going to care. There were definitely moments where I'm just standing there trying to explain Bitcoin to people and they're just looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? And why is he talking about this? <laughs> but but no one's going to say that on Instagram, right? Because you if you make the content properly, you'll find the people that like it. 
So, you know, my mission now is really not to make people laugh. It's more to shed light on this world of Wall Street, this world of Silicon Valley, and to teach people things and to also talk about my narrative and the experiences that I went through, but to do it in an entertaining and lit way versus what you might see on Investopedia or CNBC. That sounds like a good transition to IPO and chill. But before that, I just want to stop briefly and ask two more questions about just being in touch with your immigrant roots, I guess. So for context, I know you said that you're an only child. I have a younger sister. She's seven years younger, though. And so it's really interesting to see the contrast because I remember our family kind of being lower middle class. And then now I see the come up, right? But for her, she only ever remembers kind of being in America, being middle class, that whole thing. So I guess I want to start with the early phases, like when you first got into iBanking and you said like you blew a lot of money and, and all of that, do you feel like part of that came from, you know, just kind of getting here as an immigrant? Now you're the second gen, you've made it. This is the time for me to live life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, money, I equate money to freedom. Money in and of itself isn't something that I care about. I don't look at my balances all day and stroke myself like a lot of other people do. For me, and especially now when I've left the corporate world and I'm intensely focused on how to stay doing this and not have to go back because this is this is what my passion is, this is what I want to do, and I think there's really value here. I always equated money with freedom. And maybe at the time, 2011, 2012, I was in my early 20s, I just started working, I just started making a decent amount of money, money I'd never seen before, money my family has never seen before. I think it caused two things. One, it definitely caused the the devil side of me to come out and to spend and unload. And money is a way that a lot of people use to cope with stress and with pressure. And also it's a social thing too, right? Money is the original social media. And a lot of my friends were doing the same exact thing. So what am I going to do? Not do it. But it was just with my parents last week, catching up with them in New York before coming back here to LA. There's a huge dichotomy between that world and the world that I come from. And in a way, it's always been very grounding. And as I've grown older, I've learned to respect money a lot more. I've learned to invest a lot more. I mean, anytime I see money laying around now, the number one question I ask myself is, where should I be investing this? Where should I be putting this? How long should it be there for? What does the rest of my portfolio look like? Where, would, where do I not have exposure? That's how I think about money now. Money is just a tool to grow your your ability to remain free, do the things you want to do, and then also to potentially help others or start something that can help others. That's how I view money now. It's a tool. But it took a long time for me to get to that mental state of where money was no longer this thing like glitter or confetti that I would just use to have fun, but an actual tool that I can use not only to empower myself, but also to empower others and at some point my family. What changed? Was it going back home or did you just see the numbers dropping and it kind of raised an alarm? I think at some point it just catches up to you and hardships make you realize. When I first transitioned out of Goldman in 2014, 2015, I wasn't making the same amount of money that I was making earlier, right? Because I was no longer on the deal side. So that was my first realization that this money can go away as quickly as it came especially if you're dependent on a salary for it, right? And the number two thing was also, it takes time for you to understand like a 401k, for instance, right? When I first learned about a 401k, my first reaction was like, oh, this is stupid. Why would I want to put money away that I could just have in my pocket now? 
And it took me a, a while. I mean, thankfully, not too long. You know, I started maxing out my 401k 2013, 2014. So thank God, because you can actually calculate the amount of money you wouldn't have had. But, you know, you look back at that money you invested in 2013 and you see it now and you start realizing compound interest and the value of compound interest and compounding. You start realizing the difference between you start thinking about money in terms of over time, right? So I would always, if I looked at $100, I would always think of it as, all right, this, I have $100 now. Now, when I look at $100, I think of it as this is 10K in a decade, maybe less than that, maybe more than that, depending on how I invest it, right? So you start respecting money a lot more. So it's, it's really two things. It's one, I just got older, I got tired of the lifestyle. And then two, once I had that situation where I had to take a pay cut, I realized very quickly, you can't be wasting money. And so again, going back to those immigrant roots, I'm looking at you now kind of making this jump and I'm thinking like, yeah, there's the community pressure. People want to talk about your parents' pressure, but you're an adult, right? So you're, you're able to make that move. But another symptom of being a first-gen immigrant, I sometimes feel is like this feeling of not doing enough or like if I'm quitting this tough job, am I just quitting or am I actually doing something meaningful? There, there are no critics that will be harder than yourself. At least that's how I feel. When I left Goldman, even when I was at Goldman, I want to be clear, I wasn't clocking it in. I don't think it's even possible at some of these. I don't know which firm you're joining, but at many of these top firms, it's very, very hard to just clock it in. It's either you're getting promoted or you're getting fired. Maybe you'll see this more at tech companies. I'm not sure because tech companies just have a different business model, right? Many of them, if they're on the software side, they literally print money. They can shut it down and go to the Bahamas. They'll still make money. But at a bank, you don't make money unless you pick up the phone. And the only major costs that you have outside of rent are people. And, and the office isn't going anywhere. Even now with COVID, we see many of these banks want their people back. So the only thing that you can toggle is your headcount, right? <laughs> and consulting firms work the same way. So I was always pushing myself at GS. And one of the biggest things I wanted to do was get promoted to VP. And that's something that took all my energy, all my time, and it happened. So I was never clocking it in, but there's definitely some added pressure. I had a manager telling me if I was doing enough at the end of the day. When you leave these structured environments, now I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a creator. There's no one that's going to call me, at least at this stage of my career, to tell me, hey, you got to do these five things. Or, hey, you, you, you only put out 10 videos. You should have put out 20. I just tell myself that every night. So, <laughs> so I think the key is to stay centered, stay structured, have specific goals you're trying to hit. That way you don't get into this mindset of, oh shit, I didn't do enough today. You should define what enough is in the context of your goals. And I'm trying to get better at that. It's easy to say that. It's hard to actually do it. But I'm my biggest critic and I put more pressure on myself than anybody else ever could. I like that you just started breaking down the world of finance on here a couple moments ago, but <laughs> I might, I might be liable to do that at any given point in time. My be right. <laughs> He's IPO and chill and always, I guess, since I brought up the name, do you want to give us like a formal, like what is IPO and chill? It's not just TikToks, right? Like, so one of the things I've been curious about is you're building this thing. Is the social media, the platform, or is it just, is there like something larger behind it? The way I think about social media, especially TikTok or Instagram, namely Instagram Reels, these are funnels. So if you can't hook somebody in 10 seconds or 20 seconds, how are you going to hook them for two minutes or three minutes, let alone a 20-minute Netflix show or something like that, right? So with IPO and Chill, I've been teasing content. The idea is, you know, an IPO is an initial public offering, kind of like a birth. You IPO'd on your birthday, came right out of your mom. And that's how a lot of these companies 
come out to the public, right? The only way to buy stock in a company is if it has gone public. There are many different ways to IPO nowadays, but traditionally speaking, you know, the IPO is this big, almost like a wedding, right? Everyone gets together, all the families there, family meeting, the managers, the board, the investors, there's a bell, you're at Nisey and everyone's cheering for you and you're taking pictures and everyone's looking at the price, blah, blah, blah. And the joke that my friends and I would make, a few of them have startup companies, that one of them has since gone public, is that, you know, what are you going to do after you go public? Are you just going to IPO and chill? Because, you know, the idea is you have equity in the company and obviously now that it's public, you can, you can exit at some point. It's not that easy. But the idea behind this entire thing is basically I want to make financial education fun and it comes down to three parts. It's cultural, which is what I've been doing through entertaining comedy type videos, showing people what the culture of these places is like. That's the hardest thing to learn. And it's the number one question people generally have in interviews. I'm sure you just got a new job. I'm sure this is a question either you asked or someone asked you. At Goldman, that was the number one thing that people would always ask. You know, what's the culture like? What's the culture like? Blah, blah, blah. You work a lot. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the culture is there better be a green dot next to your name or you're fired. That's the culture. And I, I think that's a lot of places, not just finance. But in my view, this is really three things. It's teaching people about the culture, giving people practical tips that they could use from a career perspective. So that's going to be the next set of videos that I put out. And then lastly, talking about financial news, current events, and even financial tips. I do talk a lot about cryptocurrency, which I have a lot of videos detailing my case for Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I want to do more videos like that, just giving people... I'm a big believer in frameworks. I don't like this whole expert culture that we have in social media where someone is apparently a master stock trader, but instead of spending their time trading stocks, they're spending their time selling online courses. I wonder I wonder what the economics really are here, right? So from my perspective, you know, my entire brand is being real, being chill, and that's what IPO and chill is. It's telling people, hey, here's what this world is like. Here's what's going on in this world. And here's some things that you can do if you want to get into this world. So when you decided to kind of mix comedy and the world of finance, did you do that because it was like a personal passion that's developed over time because you're mixing the two worlds you've been in? Or did you see it as like an opportunity niche? And this was kind of a surprise thing that you saw that you wanted to develop? You know, to be honest, I think the best stuff just comes from what you do when no one's watching or when you're just with your boys. Me and my friends are all into we invest together. We're into finance and markets. We talk about businesses all the time. Many of my friends are heavy in the startup world, or they were. Now they've actually exited. I have a big network of friends who are in venture capital, private equity, hedge funds. So this is the world that I live in, essentially, culturally speaking. And this is all we talk about. And the number one, look, maybe it's a disease that I have, but the best analogies that I make or the way that I really see the world is through finance and economics. Because at the end of the day, how can we judge what a person's priorities really are? What are they spending their money on? Where are they putting their money? What are they doing? Money talks, right? My dad would say this all the time when I was little. Money talks, money talks. Like, I really believe it. Money really talks. And I'm also a big fan of rap music. And now Forbes has caught up to these guys and rappers are becoming entrepreneurs and they're putting their money where their mouth is. And you can literally see, you don't have to take a rapper's word for it anymore. You can literally see if a rapper's worth 100 M's or not, right? Like even Jay-Z had that one line, you know, figure what the Forbes figured, then figure more because they forgot to figure what I did with the raw. Like it's, this is becoming mainstream. Nas is rapping about crypto. You can track money. Money's how we keep scores. So, and I'm not saying money is everything. All I'm saying is when you're trying to 
figure out why people are acting a certain way or whether even in our culture, who's going to pay for the wedding? Who's going to pay for the Sangeet? You know, who paid for all the food? That's the number one question my mom always asks every time I go to a wedding. Oh, who's paying for all this, right? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what tells you where people's intentions truly lie. So for me, I've always seen the world through that vein. And I'm from New York City. Every, every you're At any given point in time, you might be around a $10 million property in New York City and not even know it. So money, it's all around you. And how we and my job for many years was valuing things, right? What's the right value of something? How much should we sell this for to someone else? How much should we buy for this? So these, these are the ways that I see the world and how I view the world. So for me, it's not necessarily something that I need to sit down and figure out, oh, okay, how am I going to make this joke about IPOs today? Right. It's sadly, this is just how I see the world and how I make sense of things. And I'm able to use that to make analogies into dating and to other things because at the end of the day, human actions are human actions. Right. So if you can analyze them in one way, why can't you analyze them using that same framework for another? The fact that you're using a framework that you actually apply in your life is probably why your content feels and is so real. So you already kind of mentioned that you see social media as a avenue or a funnel to other content. It's a way to test content, I suppose. But I'm kind of curious, you started in comedy on stage, doing stand-up, speaking to people, and now you're doing more social media type stuff where it's a lot of, you know, sitting in front of your phone, recording something probably 12 or 13 times, editing it on different tools. Oh, there's a new platform out this week. So both of them can be difficult in their own ways. Both of them can be fun in their own ways. Between stand-up and social media, I'm curious which one you enjoy more and if you feel like you're pursuing social media more because you enjoy it more or it's just kind of the lucrative option. I started at an interesting time. I started during COVID. So it was quote unquote normal to be on your phone or computer 18 hours a day. That was already somewhat normal for me anyway, given my, my earlier profession. But I don't find it odd to be doing this. It is exhausting. I don't think people realize how exhausting it is because it's not just recording. What are you recording? Why are you recording it? You have to look through your data. You have to look through your analytics. You have to I think of my followers as my clients. You have to give your followers what they want. The other day, I just did and asked me anything. I asked them what they wanted to see. I got all these ideas and I love getting the ideas because it means people actually care and they're watching and they're listening. And now I have my work cut out for me, right? Now I have to go and think about, okay, how can I add some value about interviewing tips? How can I add some value about resumes? This is how I push myself and this is how I grow myself, right? I don't have a manager at Goldman. I, you know, Carrie Ann from Goldman isn't going to sit me down anymore and say, hey, you hit these five things, you need to hit these three things or, or what have you. So this is how I create the necessary structure and workflow for me to get to that next level, right? It's not just about the numbers. You can dump out 20 TikToks that are all copying latest trends and pump up your followers. But at the end of the day, if these people don't actually care about what you're talking about or what you have to offer, then they're meaningless, right? So for me, I, I think, you know, TikTok, Instagram, yes, these are funnels. These are, are things that exist for something greater. If that greater thing is me getting out in person again, then maybe we'll see. If that greater thing is me just continuing to do longer form videos, we'll see. If that greater thing is me putting together a show with a bunch of writers and we get it on CNBC or Netflix, we'll see. But for now, my main priority is just figuring out, do people, the number one question I had when I first started making content and the reason I almost didn't was, I just always wondered, would anyone listen to me? 
period. If I said anything at all, would anyone care about what I had to say? And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, look, you have all these experiences. I don't know anybody else that was crazy enough to achieve the things I did in that world and then just leave. And I like what I do. I think I connect with people. I think I entertain people and I think I educate people. So why don't I try this and see what happens? At some point, Bill Gates even had to ask himself, shit, I'm in this garage. I'm me and Paul Allen are looking at this big 50 inch computer. And is this ever going to turn into anything? We don't know. Let's just try it. So that was my moment and we'll see what happens. But maybe I'll get back on the stage again. I love, look, I love, I do a lot of wedding speeches and stuff for my friends. I love entertaining people. That's my number one thing that I like to do. I like entertaining people and enlightening people. So I'll, I'll never say no to a microphone. But for now, I like what I'm doing. I like that I'm learning. That's important to me. It's a big core value of mine. I'm learning a lot about these platforms. I'm meeting tons of people and I'm having a good time, whether it's on the phone or not. And look, it leads to things like this, right? We might not be in the same room together, but we're talking and I'm getting to know you. And this wouldn't have happened if I wasn't on my phone 18 hours a day. So it leads to good things. It does. Yeah. I felt very similarly when I started the podcast. I, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And in fact, the idea of what it is changed a little bit over time. But I think the tough thing with a lot of these is that the results come at the end, but like way, way at the end. You just really can't predict where it's headed, right? Anish, if I had to label you, I'd say you're like a finance guy or a comedy guy, but I've seen you just kind of dropping life gems, dating gems, career gems. <laughs> so I, I do want to draw more from that experience that you've built up thus far from kind of those crazy worlds that you've been in or, you know, from the reputation you built in that world and then uh, leaving and all that life experience. So the first question I'll just ask, what are three pieces of advice you would give a guy in their 20s and because this is brown people we know, I'll give you brownie points if it's advice for like a 20-year-old brown guy. Of course. I feel like that's who I really am talking to, to be honest. I'm talking to myself. When I'm in front of that camera, I'm just talking to myself at age 23. And I hope it resonates. I hope it doesn't. But I think that's why it comes off as real because I'm not trying to talk to Chad from Greenwich with a trust fund. I'm not trying to talk to Stephanie, who's six one, blonde, blue eyes, right? And nothing against those people. I, I love you, Stephanie. I love you, Chad. But I've been through so many of these doors and I've seen so many monsters and I've made so many mistakes and I've slipped and fell so many times that I just know that there are other people doing this kind of stuff. And with the dating stuff, if you're in New York, nowadays it may be a little different with COVID, but LA is somewhat popping. Obviously, you have a lot of people in the Bay Area. Austin is super popping now. Miami is super popping. But I do finally believe if you're a young person and if you're a brown bro or any guy, any girl even, and you're in your 20s, you're probably online, right? You're meeting a lot of people online. And when I first started dating in New York, there was no online, right? Tinder, I think, launched in 2013, 2014. And people are going nuts. They're like, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. Like, I just, all I do, all I do is this all day, 18 hours a day, and I can meet people. But now it's normalized, right? So it's a legitimate thing to, to be using. And it, it needs to be something that you use. And look, for us brown people, we're also very selective about who we want to be with, right? And we have a lot of other considerations. It's not just, oh, she likes red wine. I like red wine. Let's get married. It's, we bring a lot of baggage to our relationships because we have a lot of pressure. Oh, is, are my parents going to like? Are we the same religion? What's your career? So if you are super particular or you think that, there are going to be a lot of obstacles. The one thing I will say is be 
and, and this is going to sound like this is going to sound a little weird, but before anyone would ever interview for a job, I would always tell them, know your resume cold. At the end of the day, the number one thing you need to know is your resume. You should be able to recite your resume because if you don't know your resume and I ask you about an interest or a class you took in your recommended coursework, which are, are, you know, the highlighted coursework, which always happens to include every single course the kid ever took. If I ask you one question about those things and you're suddenly there's a pause and you're hesitating and you're like, oh, uh, oh, that, oh, well, I took that two years ago. It's like, well, then I'm just going to cut you right then and there because if you don't know yourself, then how can I trust you to do anything for me? Right? How can I trust you to know this company if you can even know yourself? It's the one thing you need to know. So, in the same vein, I would say for anyone who's trying to meet someone, know yourself first because you're going to avoid a lot of problems. And number one thing I did, I took a break from online dating, dating in general when I moved to LA, and then obviously with COVID, it wasn't possible. But the number one thing I did before I moved, and it wasn't really for dating purposes, it was more for career, but it ended up being a cornerstone activity I did that influenced every part of my life positively. Was I listed out my three core values? I asked myself, I looked in the mirror and I said, what are your values? And every decision I make and everything I do from that point forward is has to be somewhat inextricably linked to those values. And for me, it's integrity, loyalty, creativity. Everything I do has to be real. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to be honest. If I'm dealing with people, I'm going to be honest because it's going to save me the most time down the road. How many times have we told someone, yeah, I'll meet, I'll meet up with you later. Or, yeah, let's get coffee. And we didn't meet in. And now you're spending time trying to figure out how to cancel on them. It's like, why waste the time? Just be real with people. And that's a very basic example. Loyalty. I'm loyal to my friends. They've done a lot for me and they're loyal to me. And I'm 33 years old. It's tough to make new friends when you're 33. Okay. You have to invest in the relationships you have. And the best way to maintain those relationships is if people know that you're loyal and you're responsible. And then lastly, creativity. The biggest professional successes I've ever had. When I was at Goldman, I built an online learning system using we were working with a vendor, but we also had to use a lot of resources that we internally had. And it was a tough project to manage, but I was able to be creative, not just with what the project looked like, but also how we marketed it. And creativity has always been my way of being commercially successful. And now I'm in a field where I have to be creative or I won't succeed. So once I knew my values, it wasn't hard to talk to women. It wasn't hard, more importantly, to find what I liked and didn't like. And I didn't have to depend on these physical or these oftentimes on the surface things like, oh, they don't like the same cuisine that I like. So I don't know if it'll work. It's like that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is do you have similar values? And if you do have similar core values, then you can oftentimes get over a lot of those obstacles that we as brown people think are complete red flag non-starter obstacles. And look, you're not always going to be perfect. But what I have found, even my own relationship, I have a girlfriend now, we've been dating for about six months is there are going to be things that you can work through and get over as long as you know the foundation of the house, which is your core values, are secure. But if you don't even know your own core values, then you're not even going to know what to look for or what not to look for in another person. So before you even start doing any of this dating stuff, my my advice to anyone listening, whether it's a guy, girl, whoever, is figure out what your core values are. Outside of dating, is there anything that you've started or stopped doing once you kind of dove deeper into your core values? Yeah, I stopped wasting time with people I don't like. I stopped going out. You know, when I, I don't know if you did you go to business school? I did, yeah. <laughs> oh, where'd you where'd you go to B school? Michigan. Go blue. Oh, nice. Ross. It's a great school. Nice. Good stuff. I've never been, but I have a few friends that went to Ross, smart people. I I never went to B school, but my boss, who I'd asked my boss before I left Goldman, 
if it's something I should consider. And the number one thing that he would ask me was like, well, what specifically are you going for? And what specifically are you going to do? Because the minute you get to B school, it's not a lot of time. Two years is not a lot of time. It's not even really two years, right? Because you interned after the first year and you get winter break, right? It's really just like kind of one year that you're actually there in school meeting people. And she told me, look, if you're not super focused on what you're doing and you don't know exactly what you need to be doing, then you're not going to get a lot out of it. And the core values exercise for me was that focus and the ability to just know what's a waste of my time and what's not. Like when I first came to LA, I was getting super distracted. I wanted to meet a bunch of people. I wanted to build the network. I was trying to figure out, oh, maybe I should do a little bit of stand-up. Maybe I should do a little bit of acting. Maybe I should also start networking with these people that work at entertainment agencies. Maybe I should, you know, TikTok's based in LA. Maybe I can get a job there doing partnerships. I was so dispersed and unfocused. But the minute I started figuring out, okay, well, what, what do I really care about? What keeps me up at night? What pisses me off the most? Once I had those core values, that's when I was able to sit down and say, okay, no, I'm going to focus on this content stuff because it allows me to be truthful, right? The integrity piece. It allows me to be creative in the most creative way, right? I can literally make whatever I want and then use data to figure out if it's good or not. And then look, in, in terms of loyalty, I think I have built a lot of relationships doing this with people that I otherwise would never have met. And I need to also just stay loyal to myself sometimes, right? The reason I left Goldman was because, look, sometimes you could be good at a lot of things and interested in a lot of things, but they're not necessarily aligned with your passions or your actual real interests or your purpose. And I often felt, despite the fact that I was good at my job and obviously I was making money and it was something to do, I wasn't really being loyal to myself. I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. So the reason I'm on the path that I'm on now really comes down to my core values. And that's, and that's what I would recommend anyone else to do because it allows you to not have those distractions or even if you are getting distracted, at least you're self-aware of it. Man, I really love this advice because I've done something similar. For me, it's learning and adventure. Adventure being that the world is so huge, you know, there's new food, new culture, new people to meet. So I'm always trying to explore. And then learning is just pushing out of my comfort zone. And the funny thing about those core values is there were times in my life where I thought I had something as a core value. But over time, these two have consistently made the list. And that's how I kind of narrowed it down to these are my core values. And everything that you're saying just resonates so deeply because I think, especially with South Asian culture, you factor in your parents, you factor in your family. There's like so much pressure coming from all around. And then you're an immigrant. So now you feel the need to hit certain expectations or, you know, I need to do this because other people are depending on me. There's like all sorts of variables. Could I say three just to push yourself? There's always going to be six, seven, eight. Responsibility is one. I love my parents. They've done so much for me. I feel a core responsibility to make sure that they ultimately have a good life. Learning is another one for me too, bro. Part of what I'm doing now, I love it because I'm learning so much, right? I'm not a social media or I wasn't a social media expert or anything like that. I wouldn't even say I am now, but I know a hell of a lot more now than I did a year ago. And it's fun to learn. I like learning. Sometimes that's what gets us in trouble. We're just always stuck in learning mode and our parents want us to be in learning mode in school. And well, at some point you have to apply these things and make some money. I totally agree. And I think the, the benefit of having two or three is that it's an easy checklist, right? It's something you can always come back to. Anish, I have one more topic that I kind of want to discuss before I swing around to where people can find you. There was something on your resume that kind of stood out to me a little bit, it seemed a, a little bit not unusual per se, but is just different from the other work that we've discussed today, which is that 
while you were in NYC, you were on the board for SUPNA NYC, which is a nonprofit that promotes health and social justice for South Asian immigrant women. Not only were you on the board, you were the only man on the board. And so I'm just kind of curious, what brought you to that organization? What were you kind of looking to do there? Because you were also doing all the finance stuff and comedy stuff, I assume, during that time. Yeah, it was. I was stretched pretty thin, but it felt good because once again, it was aligned with my purpose. Civic duty is very important to me. And look, you know this from being in the corporate world, depending on where you work, but many of these firms actually do take the civic stuff somewhat seriously. And at Goldman, we always, every year, we have to do this thing called community teamworks. And, you know, granted, it's one day, but it's up to you if you leave it at one day, right? So for me, I was always looking to do something where I was involved in a community organization. And for a while, I was involved with Chess in the Schools. I was on the board there. And I tutored children, lower-income city children for many, many years, which was really, really enlightening. And I think that also even started this interest of mine and educating others and shepherding others because, you know, you, you show up trying to teach someone physics, but really what you end up talking about is life and and everything but physics, right? So with Sapna, I had a family friend who was, and, and for the people listening, Sapna, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're brown, you should know this, but Sapna means dream in Hindi, also in Bengali as well. And I, I speak Bengali fluently. And the the connection there was I had a family friend who was the older, it was actually the older sister of a family friend. And she needed someone to host a charity event back in 2014, 2015. And I just raised my hand and said, I would do it. It was in Tribeca. It was a big gala. We showed up and I'm meeting all these people. And I became really interested in the organization because there were many, there are some designer nonprofits that you may be aware of that are also focused on the South Asian space. And many of these are just money funnels. So they throw these big events to raise much money. I'm sure they have impact. I'm actually not 100% aware of exactly what they're doing. But for the most part, the people that join the boards, the, these are a lot of my friends who are basically trying to pad their HBS applications. So it didn't seem meaningful enough for me to spend any time doing that. I, didn't, I wasn't looking for another social club. I have plenty of friends. So from my view, when I showed up and you know they had the actual women from the... So this is an organization based in New York City. They mainly operate in the Bronx, but all throughout the city. And they focus on the tagline, we'll say South Asian immigrant women. But since then, uh, and especially since COVID happened, it's pretty much spread to any and all you know disadvantaged groups of women that are in the city. And this is something that I can just see my mom benefiting from when she was first in the country. And I met a lot of the women there. Um, I also liked the the founder of the organization was... She was a PhD who had, I think, you know, I forget the school. It was one of the, I think Sinai actually. Um, and she had done a lot of research on just fact-based or really just scientific ways that you can improve community health. And since then, it's evolved into more, you know, language and economics as well. So I, I like the idea that it was based on data-driven approaches that were proven to work at that scale, at that level. It was a community organization based in the city and I could actually see what they were doing. And then on top of that, the food was really good. I was feeling good. There was an open bar. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't think anything of it. I hosted it. And then I got a call from the director who wanted to meet me. And then she was like, look, we need younger people. We also need more men. Would you think about joining the board? And we talked a little bit about the time commitment, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, why not? Like, who cares? I'll just figure out a way to cut time from something else. There's no reason I can't 
Like, I don't want to be that D-bag that's like, nah, I don't have enough time, you know, because <laughs> because I have a big social calendar and I got to go to Mr. Purple every weekend. So that started in 2015. And I have been a part of it ever since. Even when I moved to LA, the number one thing I did was I gave her a call and I said, look, I still want to be a part of this. And remember, this is before COVID. So I was like, look, I still want to be a part of this. I, I think I'm going to be flying back to New York every few months. Don't worry. I can. I think I can make it work. Then of course, COVID happens and we're all digital anyway. But it's been a great ride and I hope to continue to serve on it. If anything, you know, for the folks that are listening, we're always looking for more young people to be involved in the organization, whether it's at the board level or or really anything else. And now that things are opening up, we're going to be doing a lot more events. So feel free to reach out to me if that's something you're interested in. I was curious because I interviewed Serbi Sani a few weeks ago, who is also involved with Sapna NYC. Did you say you taught chess at schools? There's a nonprofit in New York. They're national, I think, but mainly in New York called Chess in the Schools. So chess in the school is an organization. Basically, they get kids together to play chess. They do tournaments. But it's really a way just to keep them out of trouble. And as part of that, they do a lot of college advising and tutoring. And I was a tutor for a few years. Every weekend, I think, I would go and I would help. You know, it's kind of funny. Like, I remember... You know, I remember thinking it was this big structured thing. And I was like, yeah, I can only do, like, these subjects, blah, blah, blah. And I show up and I... You know, there's this, like... 14 year old girl and she's like yeah i need help with math i'm like all right yeah let's let's do some math so we sit down and it's all this trigonometry that i just do not remember at all it was like sine squared plus cosine squared you know it's like you're doing all those proofs like divide by cosine you get tan all this stuff and i'm i'm sitting there looking at this this stuff bro and i'm just like jesus christ and then she's like yeah so i i just don't but but the funny you know you know those situations where like the student actually knows everything and they're kind of just there to you know for the mental reason and she's like yeah so I, I divide everything by this and then I got this and I think this is the answer and I'm looking at it and I'm like I'm like yeah that that actually looks correct that that looks right uh, it was <laughs> you, you get some of these moments where you're like and and this is also where I yeah I find it, you know at, at the time I'm you know I'm doing like M and A at Goldman Sachs and I'm thinking like I'm getting schooled on math by some like 14 year old right now so like what do I really do for a living you know like like why why does anyone think I'm smart My parents had me play chess when I was younger and there was a long time when I really hated it but as I've gotten older I've actually started to really enjoy it and it's actually been a weirdly helpful networking tool at times but everything that you said about working with kids also resonates because I used to work at a nonprofit with children. Some weeks you're you're there to teach math and some weeks you're there to help get their confidence up or help them stay focused for a little bit, those types of things. So that was that was the majority of it to be honest. And I mean you learn how to actually relate to people too. You learn how to talk to people properly. If you can talk to a child, you can talk to anybody. Anish, where can people find you? Where can they find IPO and chill and stay up to date on everything you're doing? Yo, I'd be all over the internet. So Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Mitra NYC, M-I-T-R-A-N-Y-C. And IPO and chill, everything. If you go to my LinkedIn bio on both Instagram or TikTok, you'll see everything there. Pretty soon, I'll have the YouTube popping and we'll we'll take it from there. But any social media, you could find me to search me up. And if you want to add me on LinkedIn, feel free. A lot of people have been doing that. I just add them, you know, who knows? You never know. I'm a big believer in just building the network and then reaching out later. But M-I-T-R-A-N-Y-C on all social platforms. Anish, you're you're real, you're hilarious, you're insightful. I feel like the way that people look at Hassan right now in the community, 
if not for Bengali and South Asian people, you will eventually become that for like misplaced finance bros that are <laughs> trying, to, trying to get it. <laughs> misplaced? No, you're misplaced if you're still at the bank, okay? No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's been it's been a wild ride. I've always been very close with the Bengali community in New York. I, I know, you know, Kamrul who runs uh, Bengali uh, in New York and Tundra Shree is such a good friend of mine. She's like a sister to me. So I'm always a big supporter of the community and anything I do in your podcast. I've heard a lot about it and I know you guys are doing it real big. So I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.